Welcome to Piecemeal, an Emily program podcast where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. I'm your host, Claire Holtz, and on today's episode, we are talking about diet culture. But before we tackle that topic, we're going to revisit last month's episode called Eating Disorders 101. We got a phenomenal listener comment. She wrote to us, the one thing that made me realize I had an eating disorder was that it wasn't normal to obsess about food, my weight, my body image, to the degree that I did. It infiltrated my mind 99% of the time and went with me everywhere. I couldn't stop thinking about it and acting on it. She went on to say that her eating disorder forced her to isolate from others because it was so loud that it made her feel the need to be alone, to keep exercising, and to not eat out with friends or family. She felt the more disciplined in these behaviors she was, the prouder of herself she became. We thought her experience was important to share because it's so often the experience of others. So thanks to her for writing in to us. Moving on to this week's topic, again, we're talking about diet culture, and joining me today is Hilmar Wagner. He's a dietitian with a master's degree in public health, and he currently works for the EMILY program as our nutrition coordinator, dietetic internship coordinator, and clinical outreach specialist. Hilmar, with all those titles, can you tell us a little bit about what you do here? Absolutely. And thank you, Claire, for having me on today. I'm super excited for it, um, even dressed up a little bit. <laughs> so, um, and seriously, as well, um, this is such an important topic, and I'm glad that we're spending some time on it today. I've had the pleasure of being a dietitian here at the Emily Program, working in the field of eating disorders for the past 12 years or so. And in that time, I've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of clients with all types of eating disorders and struggles and symptoms. And I will, I will tell you that despite the variety of symptoms and struggles that individuals have, one of the most common influences is the distortion in food and eating that is a direct result of our diet culture. Well, we aren't exactly sure where diet culture started or dieting in general started. We do know that the word diet originated from an ancient Greek word, diatia, which meant to live life as advised by a medical professional. However, in 1028, we start to see that dieting turns synonymous with weight loss. William the Conqueror, who was born in that time frame, was known for becoming too overweight in his later years to ride his horse. In order to return to riding, he decided to go on a liquid diet of only alcohol until he was thin enough to ride his horse again. In 1906, President William Howard Taft wrote to a diet expert for weight loss advice. He sought help due to restless sleep and indigestion, but this is also where we see the first trace of judgment around size. Taft claimed that no gentleman should be his size or weigh his weight. Taft is also famously known for getting stuck in the White House bathtub, but according to the New York Times, that didn't actually happen. It was, however, a key example of weight-based stigma and weight bullying during that time period. One thing to note here is that all historical evidence of dieting prior to the 1900s is focused on males and the male experience. This is most likely due to the fact that women were predominantly left out of the conversation as their societal position before the 1900s was kept in the home and not in public discourse or the press. The first evidence of 
a female or a woman's dieting experience was when Lulu Peters wrote a book called Diet and Health. This was the first book that brought up calorie counting and the idea that eating fewer calories was the way to lose weight. In the early 2000s, the paleo diet became popular. And in the past 10 years, we've seen diets like Whole30, keto, juice cleanses, things like that take off. Well, this is just a quick gloss on the history of dieting. I thought it was important to share the origins of dieting and diet culture. It goes to show that our culture has long been fixated on food, weight, and size. While we don't intend to ostracize or criticize folks that are adhering to diets in this episode, we do want to talk about dieting in order to lose weight in relation to eating disorders. Hilmar, can you tell us a little bit about dieting in general from your point as a nutritionist and also what the popular phrase diet culture means? I sure can. I think for most people, the term dieting is associated with trying to lose weight. And that usually involves making changes in their eating or activity patterns. And as you just illustrated, we've become increasingly focused, obsessed really, with body weight, shape, and appearance. And this has created what is now known as the diet culture. A commonly used definition for diet culture is as follows. Diet culture is a system of beliefs that worship thinness, promote weight loss, demonize certain ways of eating and living, and oppresses those who don't meet the societal standard for beauty. Pretty awful, huh? Yeah, definitely. And yet, we're constantly bathed in these messages and values throughout our lives, and we're all affected by them, both consciously and unconsciously. So diet culture is super insidious. I know from my perspective as someone that walks through the world as an able-bodied female who's also white, I mean, I'm pretty privileged in a lot of ways, but just as a woman on that basis, I think I walk through the world every day and I get just an insane amount of body messaging. I see bus stop ads about dieting. I see ads on the sides of buildings about getting a new gym membership and losing the belly fat. I go shopping to clothes stores and clothes stores only have a certain size. Then you go to a plus size store and they only have a certain size. And if you're beyond that, you end up buying clothes online. So it's just, I mean, it's everywhere, and it's everywhere for a reason, and that's because it's profitable. Shaming people into buying all of these things, I mean, sadly, the research shows that it works. If you shame someone enough about how they look or what they're doing, they're eventually going to feel made to change those behaviors. So it is a profit machine as well. Diet culture isn't just something we talk about in theory, but it's working every day of our lives. But just on the basic level, Hilmar, would you say that as a male, you have the same experience of that, or would you say it's different? No, I certainly personally do not feel as targeted by these messages, and I think it has only been somewhat more recently that this harsh light has been directed towards males as well. Increasingly, we are seeing males come forward with their own struggles with eating disorders, and I think that's due to a number of factors. We're getting better at putting the word out to males that eating disorders do not differentiate between uh, genders, as well as I think that increasingly changes in fashion, changes in body image in terms of what is the ideal for males has been becoming increasingly um, what would you say, uh, distorted? 
and mm-hmm. idealized in a way that we're starting to feel those pressures as well. So diet culture is essentially a huge machine that infiltrates almost every aspect of our life, and I think it's important to start with that understanding. So we definitely do know that diet culture just isn't about food only. It's about a ton of other things. It's about societal messaging, advertising, stereotypes, what we consider to be an ideal body nowadays. But for the purposes of the rest of this episode, we're going to talk about diet culture in relation to dieting as a way to change or alter our body shape or appearance. So right now, we're seeing a lot of folks achieve those goals by doing fad diets. Some fad diets that we hear, I especially hear about all the time, are diets like paleo, which is also known as the caveman's diet, which is essentially you eat meat and only food that would have been available during the caveman era. And there's also a bunch of juice cleanses people do now. Um, A lot of yoga gyms promote them. They'll say you can do a juice cleanse for three days. You buy the juices that are normally six, seven dollars a bottle. You drink only that for three days and you consider it a cleanse and it promotes weight loss, as they say. And they do often market it as a healthy alternative. So Hilmar, for diets like these, paleo, keto, juicing, in your professional opinion, do the benefits of these outweigh the risks? And more specifically, what are the risks? I think it's rarely do these type of impulse or fad or radical changes in diet maintain to a degree that people are likely to get any real benefit from them. And it's not that there are not benefits or possible benefits from people making changes in their diets. And I, and I would want to say that the intent I would hope both from the, the diet promoters as well as those who want to, or for those who go on these diets, that they are well-intended, that they do have the goal of improving one's health and well-being. Sadly, that is rarely the case. So according to NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association, those who engage in these types of moderate dieting are five times more likely to develop an eating disorder. So what exactly does this have to do with eating disorders? So I think a lot of people don't understand the link between diets and eating disorders. I think there's conversation about if I go on a diet, will I definitely develop an eating disorder? Is dieting itself considered an eating disorder because you often are restricting? What is your explanation of that? There is nothing inherently dangerous or wrong about changing the way you eat, or even restricting certain aspects of the foods that you're choosing. The real difficulty issue is that for some people, they are more susceptible to developing an eating disorder due to their underlying genetic or biological makeup, their emotional or psychological characteristics, or environmental influences. For these individuals, restrictive dieting for weight loss can be the trigger that leads them from what is a voluntary health-focused activity to one that is ultimately destructive, both physiologically and emotionally. So what is a good example of someone that goes on a diet that would be doing it for healthy reasons? And then what's an example of someone who goes on a diet and it's for unhealthy reasons or more... um, 
more of an unintentional start, like they don't do it for health reasons, they're doing it for some other reason. Sure, and this really ties directly back to our main theme here of diet culture. My concern is that many, many people feel like they have to change their eating patterns for the purpose of losing weight or changing their body shape or appearance because our culture has caused them to feel inferior, feel shamed, or embarrassed about themselves, or, or that they're unable to live their fullest, their best life due to the messages that they're receiving. So talking about living a full and healthy life and dieting in relation to that, we see a lot of folks whose doctors has told them that losing weight will help them be healthier or lead a more satisfying life. I know there's also lots of weight bias and weight stigma within the medical professional field. If a doctor tells a patient, look, you need to lose weight to be healthy, you should do X, you should do Y, what do you say to that? Is it always the case that losing weight will make certain patients healthier? Well, I want to be careful. I, I am not a physician, um, and I don't know in any specific case why a physician might counsel their client or patient to do something to reduce their weight. But I want to agree and underscore your point, Claire, that weight bias exists throughout our society. None of us are immune from that, and that certainly includes medical and health professionals. And the assumption that someone is unhealthy solely due to their shape, size, or appearance is just not true. One cannot see that a person's healthy or, or not healthy just due to their appearance. In the same way that one does not know if a person has an eating disorder solely based to their shape, size, or appearance. Look, we uh, come in a variety of shapes and sizes, and it's been tainted in the way that our society now looks to a certain specific shape or size as the right size, the right shape, the way to be, the healthy way to be. And it could be, it certainly is, that some people naturally fit that image. Not many, certainly, as, as that gets even more and more idealized, fewer and fewer real people actually look like that. Even the people in the photographs don't look like that. They've been photoshopped to look different in the same way that, Claire, you could probably change my <laughs> voice around to make me sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So um, it's that part that is a concern of me, that too often it's the assumption very frequently by the client or patient themselves that they are unhealthy because they are a certain weight, shape, or size. So if there is a medical reason why changes need to be made, that definitely needs to be addressed. But the overall assumption, the walking around assumption that just because a person lives in a larger body that they are somehow less healthy is just not true. I just want to confirm that we do edit this podcast. So after the podcast, I edit it quite a fair amount. And we do have a lot of power of what we end up sounding like. 
So I can't imagine how much you can do on Photoshop. I'm just going to throw that out there to be transparent. Um, But going back to diet culture. So diet culture, yes, it's a system of beliefs that correlate appearance with health, which is just what Hilmar talked about. The other things it does is it promotes weight loss because if we're correlating appearance with health, then yeah, obviously weight loss is going to factor in with that because we're saying, look, here's the thin ideal. You should look like this. If you don't look like that, naturally you're pressured to then change your body to meet that standard. But not only does it pressure folks into meeting the ideal, it also demonizes people that don't or that don't eat or live in correspondence with that. So let's say someone isn't necessarily thin and they are trying to get the same job as a thin counterpart and the job involves physical activity. I mean, it could happen that the person that is not as thin or considered overweight would be denied the job because they're seen as less healthy or less athletic. So it does oppress those that don't meet that standard of beauty. So it's important to know that this has real life consequences. It can affect people's employment. It can affect all of their um, medical professional appointments. They could go to the doctor and be judged differently. They could get less effective care. So we're really trying to break down the idea that size, shape, weight, that they equate exactly to health. So you can be any size, you can be any shape, you can be any weight, and you can still be healthy. It's such a great point, Claire, and I would like to direct our listeners to the excellent work done at the Rudd Center, R-U-D-D, that has really good research and um, resource materials for people on weight bias that underscores exactly what it is you were saying. Is that for providers or just the general public? For both, actually. It's a great resource. Okay, everyone, definitely check that out. I'm going to check that out after this episode. Hilmar, you work for us as one of our dietitians and obviously do lots of other stuff. But in your role as a dietitian here, how often do you meet with clients who have an eating disorder now but have dieted in the past? It's really, really common. You had mentioned the statistics from the National Eating Disorder Association, NIDA. And we see it all the time across all diagnoses also that individuals that struggle with restrictive types of eating disorders, weight loss dieting or restrictive dieting may have been the thing that triggered their eating disorder, sustained or worsened that. Sometimes restrictive eating serves as a cover for the individual's eating disorder symptoms. And I do a lot of work with clients that struggle with binge eating disorder. And clearly, the majority of those individuals have a long history of weight loss dieting, weight cycling, and it becomes a traumatic part of their experience, causing self-doubt, shame, lack of self-worth, and the ability for those individuals to come out of that restrictive diet mentality is essential for their recovery. For those with binge eating disorder, I hear a lot on our social media and just in general that folks who have binge eating disorder also often struggle with yo-yo dieting. Is that true in your experience? It is absolutely true. 
and the yo-yo dieting itself has clear negative physical as well as emotional consequences. And I might add that that cycle of repeated weight loss dieting is driven largely by this idea of the thin ideal and the trappings of our diet culture. Research also shows that 95% of those that start a weight loss diet will regain the weight back in one to five years. So we do see that yo-yo dieting is common. You lose the weight, you gain it back. You lose the weight, you gain it back. But I mean, that stat just shows that dieting generally doesn't work. Can you explain why? That's absolutely true. And it's not that there aren't people that have successfully changed their body weight and shape and size, and hopefully not for diet culture reasons. Um, There is an organization called the National Weight Loss Registry run by Dr. Rena Wing and Dr. James Hill that tracks over 10,000 individuals who have successfully lost and maintained a significant amount of weight. But the real point is nobody knows how that happens. There is no program that has a successful track record of helping people to achieve that. And with and without that, as professionals, we can't say, yes, if you do this, this, and this, then that will change. The bottom line is despite billions of dollars spent in looking for sort of that magic bullet, the only ones that exist are on late night television. And the only thing that changes is the weight of your wallet. (laughs) It's so true. Dieting is such a profitable industry. I mean, just Google dieting and how much it makes on a yearly basis, and you will be shocked by the results. I didn't write down the specific number for this podcast, but rest assured, it's way higher than I would have thought. The other underlying corrosive part is it gives people this false sense that there is indeed a quick, easy solution. And that is just not the case, even certainly for people that have made long-term changes. It is a slow and difficult process, making changes in, in any sorts of eating patterns. And for some individuals with certain medical conditions, they do need to change their eating habits. And there is no quick and easy way to do that. We as we as humans are very intimately tied to this idea of making sure that we have adequate food And it's only really been in the shortest period of mankind that there has been adequate food available. And now we're starting to see in many cultures in the developed world that becoming the struggle. Can you talk more about that? I think that's really interesting, and I haven't heard a lot about it. So evolutionarily, we have designed now to seek out and obtain adequate amounts of foods. Our way, 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 way back caveman ancestors, the ones that were so focused on 
securing food, eating food, getting as much food as they can, they survived. So it's in our genes, it's in our DNA. And for many of us now, food is omnipresent. I mean, we have to remember that in our culture and others, there are many who still really do struggle with food insecurity. And that is a very serious issue um, that doesn't get the recognition that it deserves. But for many of us, the struggle comes in that our food companies now have designed foods to hit all of those taste preferences. So foods that are high in fat and salt and uh, are attractively packaged really start to light up those, uh, those genetic desires. So we are now in a place where if I stop to get gas and I go into the gas station to pay for it, I am surrounded by all of these highly palatable, highly desirable foods. And I need to have a override, a conscious override to that because that food is always available where that has not been the case in the majority of time that we've been on the earth. Food and what we're eating for food has changed an extraordinary amount in the past 200 years. And I think that's also ushered in the good food, bad food conversation where some folks will think, oh, well, if it was around 200 years ago and I'm doing the paleo diet and I'm just eating what they would have had back in the caveman era, that then I'm doing good. Then I'm eating the good food. As opposed to the flip side of that, that then it's bad food. So if I'm eating processed sugar, if I get a candy bar at the gas station, then I'm eating bad food. I mean, innately, there's some people that can just see that as a dichotomy and think, okay, they're just food, they're just separate entities of food, and that's fine. However, a lot of people do fall victim to the idea that if you eat good food, you should feel good about yourself, and you're a good, healthy person. If you eat bad food, you should feel shameful, you should want to change, you should be guilty about eating that. And I know that's also a common thought for a lot of folks with eating disorders is feeling shameful or they take on a lot of emotional baggage with eating. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? It's such a good point. This idea of good food, bad food drives a lot of distorted and disordered eating. <clears throat> Look, food is innate. It has no moral or emotional qualities to it. If I buy a container of, say, oh, organic, fat-free yogurt, if I turn around and look at the nutrition label on the side, that is not going to tell me that I now have obtained 25% of my daily allotment of health and well-being, <laughs> right? There is, it does not make me a better person. If I go into the gas station after you and buy that candy bar, it does not make me a bad person. Look, if I am on a desert island and I have almost no food, I am certainly going to wish I had a Snickers bar, not a carrot. So it's contextual. Again, it's back. The, the, the caveman just wanted food. That is food's job, is to provide us the energy and nourishment how we do that, the interpretation of that is all from the neck up. The digestion and use of it 
is all from the neck down. And I think we need to separate those two things. Now, is it important that I have a variety of foods that maybe not all of my food choices are candy bars and none of my food choices are carrots? Absolutely. But in addition to providing nourishment, my hope as a dietitian, as a dietitian in eating disorders, is that food can not only provide nourishment, but have the overall effect of enhancing my life and well-being. And that is the role that food can play. So talking specifically about, as you called it, the neck up portion of the good food, bad food debate, how do you work with clients who come in and feel like they can't eat bad food, they feel shame about it, they feel guilty about it, they're uncomfortable, they experience an array of negative emotions? How do you work with those folks on finding a sense of peace or more mindfulness with their eating experience? Sure. And that is one of the reasons why here at the Emily program and at many eating disorder centers that the work is with a team. Uh, that, I, that aspect of working around the emotional, psychological aspects of food is carried largely by our excellent therapists um, here at the Emily program. But if I'm to do my job effectively as a dietitian within eating disorders, I also need to understand and work with clients around what those foods mean um, to them as well. And it is important for people with all eating disorders to be able to untangle that good food, bad food, or the food judgments around what it is that they eat or the foods that they choose. As we've often say here, there are no good foods, there are no bad foods, all foods fit. It does not mean all foods are equal, but learning to take back the choice of what a person eats is a key to their recovery. Very often, one of the hallmarks of eating disorders is the loss of choice in what a person eats. Eating disorders are rigid, constrictive, and what we help people regain is the true sense of choice. Once the individual can take back that choice, then they can decide, what is it that I truly want to eat? What is it that their body is hungry for? What is it that they have a taste for? And then they can decide how much of one thing or another they want to eat. But we have to take that power away from the eating disorder and return it to the individual. That sense of control also references back to what the one listener wrote into us that I read at the beginning of this episode. Eating disorders are insidious, they take control over your life, and they don't give you agency to make choices anymore. So let's just be super clear here, eating disorders, not a choice, but they do take away a lot of your personal choices you can make. So dieting and eating disorders. How do we know if a diet turns into an eating disorder? For most people, their initial changes in their eating patterns, again, are often positively health-focused and hopefully have positive outcomes. Some of the things to look at, if you are concerned that the 
positive intention may be slipping would be to look at some of the following. Is there a sense of rigidity or lack of flexibility? Very often fad diets in particular are very rule-bound, black and white. You have to eat this, you can't eat that 100% of the time. So look for that. If a situation comes up where a small change or you need to um, swap out one food for another comes up and you find it difficult to do, that could be an early warning sign, that lack of flexibility or an increasing rigidity. Another is constriction. So if a certain group of foods is trying to be avoided, if that leads to cutting back on another group of foods or fewer foods within that category. That is a real slippery slope and for susceptible individuals can be that triggering event that changes it into disordered eating or even possibly an eating disorder. Also lack of control. You really know that maybe you should do something a little differently, but you stick closely to that same rigid path. That slipping of true choice also can lead down a very negative path. Be open to and listen if close friends or families express curiosity or concern about either the eating habits themselves, change in your appearance or emotions, uh, changes in school works, work habits, those sorts of things. And if you also see that because of this certain diet that you are finding it has negative effects on other areas of your life as well. So for those that are concerned that their diet is becoming more than a diet and might have slipped into disordered eating, what should they do? It would be really important if their individuals have had a history of an eating disorder, have a current eating disorder, or have a susceptibility for an eating disorder, that they work with an experienced eating disorder professional. For others, it would be really helpful to talk about it with a close friend, family member, get some objective, uh, caring person to be able to give you a little feedback on that. Be clear and honest with yourself. Look at the degree of changes that have been made. And if you feel like this might be going down a bad road, uh, there are certainly on our website and others, some quick, easy assessments that you can take that could help give you an indication if this is something that you would want to seek help with. I think our number one advice is don't wait if you have a concern. It's common to think, well, it's not that bad. I don't need help. Um, I don't think I would qualify for treatment because I don't really have an eating disorder. But do we hear treat folks at all levels of their eating disorder? Or do most treatment centers like us, do we just accept people once it gets really bad? Can you speak a little bit to that? For sure. Research has now shown us clearly that the sooner an individual seeks treatment, the 
shorter the length for recovery generally is. Do not wait. The earlier that you seek help, the less ingrained these habits will be and the more facility that you will have to be able to work with it. Now, we work with people at all stages of their eating disorder. If it's something that you've been struggling with without help or in secret for a long time, it's never too late. Help is always available. Change is always possible. Last question before we go, Hilmar. I know you're you know, a fair amount of people's favorite dietitian here. I hear it all the time on social media when I post things related to you. Um, do you have any idea why that is? I regularly send out notices asking them to do that. <laughs> While that's flattering, I represent what is fairly common here for amongst dietitians at the Emily program. We are here because we not only are engaged and committed in this work, but we are have been selected and have received extensive training in the latest evidence-based approaches to treating eating disorders. And it's that combination of true empathy, commitment, experience, and training that our clients pick up on. A perfect answer. Well thought out. (laughs) So that wraps up this week's episode of Piecemeal. Thank you so much, Hilmar, for joining us. It's been such a pleasure, Claire. As always, if you or someone you love is experiencing signs of an eating disorder, it's important to reach out for help as soon as possible. Like Hilmar said, the longer an individual experiences an eating disorder, the longer it may take to experience full recovery. Although recovery is possible for all individuals. If your dieting has gotten out of control, you can also reach out to us at the Emily program. You can call 1-888-364-5977 or find us online at emilyprogram.com. All of the stats and things we cited in this episode will be in the show notes, so feel free to take a look at that. If you enjoyed this episode of Piecemeal, please rate, subscribe, or leave us a review. If you have any feedback, comments, things you want us to share on the podcast, you can email podcast at emilyprogram.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. 